Hey, Onco Farm listeners, quick word before the podcast uh, opens. Uh, I'm on vacation this week. This is a pod I reported, uh, recorded uh, <laughs> about two months ago. Uh, this was a user request. Somebody reached out to me. I think it was on Instagram um, saying they liked the podcast. I said, thanks. Um, anything you want to hear in particular? Um, and pain management and cancer patients was the reply. So this is about 20 minutes on pain management. could easily be two hours. So I tried to distill it with the, just the big picture and big points that I could. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, which is the supporter of this Oncology Pharmacy podcast. Uh, it is spring here in East Tennessee, and I'm recording this uh, in advance of when you will be hearing this, uh, probably for some time while I'm away on vacation. But this was uh, a topic that was requested to me. Somebody reached out on on the socials uh, and asked uh, if I would do a podcast on this, and it's really a bread and butter topic for oncology pharmacy. So I thought it made sense to to do. Uh, so we're going to talk about pain management in cancer patients. Um, now I'm going to say that uh, the way that uh, if you are if you're a pharmacy student, the way that you are learning to manage pain today is probably different than how it would have been taught 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Uh, and because this podcast probably, I guess, will live on in the internets uh, forever, uh, if you hear this 20 or 30 years from 2019, which is when I'm recording this, it might be very different uh, than what people are being taught today. So keep that in mind as we go through it. But let's start with uh, the general classes of drugs we would use to treat pain. So first, acetaminophen. Uh, now, we would not use this in patients with liver disease, whether that's organic or, say, somebody has metastatic disease in their liver. Uh, we probably would also not use acetaminophen in somebody on chemotherapy uh, because chemotherapy could make someone neutropenic, and if their neutropenic fever is going to be our best and most reliable marker for potential infection, and we would not want to use an antipyretic like acetaminophen to mask fever. So therefore, we probably don't use acetaminophen routinely to treat pain in cancer patients, and that would include opioid and acetaminophen combinations. At least for patients on chemo, we would avoid you know, your, your Percocets and your, your Lortabs, Vicodins, those, those sort of combinations, the hydrocodone acetaminophen combinations we would avoid. Then, so we're not going to talk about acetaminophen anymore. Uh, as far as NSAIDs, uh, they're antipyretic, so we would still have those same concerns as with acetaminophen. Uh, the NSAIDs also have antiplatelet activity, which is going to be a concern for patients on chemo who become thrombocytopenic. Uh, not to mention that they can increase the risk of GI bleeds, GI ulcers, and can increase the risk of acute kidney injury, especially in combination, uh, say, with patients who get dehydrated, possibly from profuse nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy. So not a lot of those are a lot of the cons for NSAIDs, but there is one pro for NSAIDs, and that is NSAIDs are really good for treating metastatic bone pain in patients who have, let's say, the GI tract and the kidneys to be able to tolerate it. So the the disease state where this becomes maybe a really um, readily usable drug are patients with prostate cancer who routinely, when it's metastatic, have diffuse bony or osseous disease that's quite painful. They're not typically on chemotherapy, chemotherapy, therefore they can be good candidates for NSAIDs and can be, can be quite helpful for, uh, for bone mets uh, caused by uh, prostate cancer, potentially other diseases as well, and sparing uh, the use of opioids. Bisphosphonates. You know, there's a bit of a myth out there that bisphosphonates uh, have an analgesic effect. 
uh, and they don't. And what I mean by that is if a patient has, say, painful bone mets and their pain score is an 8 out of 10, you give them a bisphosphonate, you give them zoldronic acid, their pain is going to stay an 8 out of 10. It's not going to decrease that. They have no analgesic effect. But what they do is uh, slow the progression of the disease in the bones. And what that does is decrease time to skeletal-related events. And those skeletal-related events typically include painful bone mets that are so painful they require palliative radiation or a pathologic fracture. Uh, so if you have someone with, say, breast cancer and painful bone mets, you put them on a bisphosphonate, uh, it's not going to make their pain score go from an 8 to a 7, but it will decrease the time of that pain score going from an 8 to a 9. So they really don't have any analgesic activity, but they do slow the progression and worsening of uh, bony disease progression. So this brings us to the opioids. Uh, and as I mentioned at the onset, this is going to be different uh, as far as how we use opioids now than what it was many years ago. Uh, you, you may be familiar with the pendulum of opioid use, where as a society, we routinely, and with some regularity, swing back and forth between two sides of a uh, chasm. On one side, the pendulum swings to opioids are dangerous, and we overuse them, uh, swinging back to the side of pain is undertreated and we should use opioids more to treat pain. And this goes back and forth and back and forth uh, in ad finitum. Uh, so if you go back, say, I don't know, 15, 15 years ago, you know, pain was the, the fifth vital sign. Uh, pain was whatever the patient said it is. There was no max dose of opioids. We could use whatever dose we want. Now, uh, you know, opioids were in a very opioid-poor environment. Uh, I think the CDC guidelines say that you should not use more than 50 milligrams of or morphine equivalents, or uh, if you have to use more net, you have to justify it and go no more above 90, which is, uh, in my opinion, a very low dose of opioids, but there is uh, very compelling evidence that doses above that do drastically increase the risk of, of opioid overdose deaths and uh, admissions to the ER for overdose. Um, and part of the rationale for the, these guidelines, and these are for chronic non-malignant pain, so not the types of patients that we would be seeing, is that there's very little evidence to suggest that opioids are beneficial for chronic non-malignant pain. And that's true. It's also true we don't have a lot of good evidence about opioids being effective for malignant pain. Uh, of course, what is effective? Is it decreasing the pain score? Is it increasing function, improving quality of life? Those sort of things we don't necessarily know but they are readily used and readily acceptable uh, for our patients with malignant pain. <coughs> Pardon me. So here's you know, my treatment approach. And, and my treatment approach uh, was taught to me. Uh, it was shared by a physician I worked with for many years who uh, you know, wrote the book on palliative care. And I mean that literally. He wrote a book on palliative care. Um, and, and in conversation with many, you know, uh, maybe not many, but other people who are, are more of an expert on treating pain, they tend to agree with this. Um, so this is how I do it. This does not mean this is how you should do it. Uh, this I'm just sharing my opinion because there is not a ton of evidence about how to do this. So my treatment approach is going to be focusing on maintaining quality of life and function of the patient uh, as opposed to looking at pain scores. You know, pain score where on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your pain, 10 being the worst pain possible. Uh, whenever I talk to patients, um, you know, doing like say a medication history, I'm always going to be asking about how are you taking your, your long-acting opioids, how are you taking your immediate release opioids, how often are you taking it, and then I ask them how pleased are you with your level of pain control. 
Uh, are you able to walk to get your mail? Are you able to cook for yourself? Those sort of basic functional questions give you an idea of how well the pain is being controlled. Uh, and it's important to maybe manage expectations with patients with terminal cancer, uh, with malignant pain, and that you know a pain score of zero is probably not reasonable. Um, additionally, as patients move closer on their cancer journey towards the end of that battle and you start to get into um, uh, end-of-life scenarios, uh, it's important to have discussion with patients and their family that there can be a fine line as you increase the dose of opioids rather quickly where just enough drug will make the patient appear comfortable and have what appears to be adequate pain control and a little bit less than that. But at the same time that you have that adequate pain control, uh, the patients are very sleepy and maybe not very uh, conversational. Whereas just a slightly lower dose can cause the patients, they can talk and they're able to, to carry on a conversation with loved ones, uh, but they are much more uncomfortable. And that can be a fine line to match that and it is certainly a challenging scenario, uh, more common in the end of life. Uh, the next kind of treatment approach is we want to use sustained release or extended release, controlled release opioids. Um, and those uh, smoothing of the concentration time curves are going to uh, decrease hopefully our periods where there is breakthrough pain as well as decreasing peak concentrations where we tend to see the most toxicity. And then always having available immediate release opioids for breakthrough pain. And the immediate release opioid dose should be roughly 10 to 20% of the total daily oral mo oral morphine equivalent per dose. And we'll do a little example as we get into that. All right, so that's kind of, you know, maybe the background. Now let's get into some of the specifics about uh, opioids. So morphine, this is going to be our first line opioid for most patients, uh, especially the generic MS cotton, uh, which is dosed by the FDA label every 12 hours. We tend to use it every eight hours. Um, you know, the plasma levels are pretty stable of extended of controlled release morphine, so generic MS con from hour 12 or hour 8 to hour 12. So it's not uncommon for patients to say, you know, the pain wears off about, you know, three hours before I'm due for my next dose. Uh, so I don't have any trouble dosing MS cotton uh, every eight hours and t tends to be my starting dose. Um, so the way that you would maybe start someone on this, uh, typically they're going to be on an immediate release morphine or maybe an immediate release Lortab or hydrocodone acetaminophen combination if they're not on chemo. And you'll take their 24-hour daily oral morphine equivalents. Uh, and let's say that comes up to be 100 milligrams. Uh, well, you know, you can't do 100. There's, I don't think there's a 50 milligram of generic MS con. So you'd round to the nearest dosage form. That might be 30 milligrams every eight hours to be 90 milligrams a day. Um, for as far as, <coughs> excuse me, as far as figuring out their total daily oral morphine equivalents, uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the, the equal analgesic dosing table. You could probably find one uh, in about 30 seconds on your mobile device. Um, you, we should all be aware that those doses come from that, that table. What's considered equal analgesic comes from usually single dose studies of healthy patients. So, you know, you get one dose of an opioid, um, then you get another dose of an opioid the next day, for example, and uh, researchers are measuring. Um, say, decrease in heart rate, change in pupil diameter, things like that to figure out the equal analgesic dose. So they are very much um, like a compass that tells you, you know, one drug is more potent or less potent than another with some degree of how potent or how, uh, or how, or how less potent it is. But it's not very specific. It's not very accurate. So it's a little bit like a compass telling you to go north 
as opposed to GPS coordinate. GPS coordinates telling you exactly how north to go. Um, so keep that in mind. We'll give it. We'll talk about a good example of that in a little bit later. Um, so as far as immediate release morphine, uh, I, I think it's also would be surprising to many that 30 milligrams of oral morphine sounds like a pretty big dose, but it's actually kind of the standard dose for pain. Uh, if you look at that equal analgesic dosing table, the dose that's the starting dose for everything is 30 milligrams of morphine, and everything's kind of based off of that. Um, there is also rectal uh, formulations of morphine, which we would not use in patients who are neutropenic or thrombocytopenic, but at the end of the life it'd be okay, and, and a morphine PCA is often commonly used uh, as well. Uh, morphine is metabolized and delivered to three glucuronide and six glucuronide morphine metabolites. That six glucuronide morphine metabolite will accumulate in real dysfunction and can cause excess sedation, sleepiness. Uh, it's you know I've seen patients come to the hospital with acute kidney injury and they can't they're somnolent, they can't be aroused. Uh, we change their their morphine uh, for the pain to their long acting morphine to long oxycodone and at a, at an equal analgesic dose and you know they wake up. Uh, pretty quickly after doing that uh, because of the accumulation of that, that toxic morphine metabolite. So that's morphine, kind of our bread and butter first line go-to. Um, by and large, you should be able to treat most patients with malignant pain on long-acting morphine and immediate release morphine for breakthrough. Uh, oxycodone is probably the next commonly used oral drug. Uh, there's the immediate release oxycodone and uh, the, the long-acting oxycontin or generic oxycontin is what we use. Uh, now the controlled release, uh, the plasma levels uh, continue to drop from 8 to 12 hours, so it's probably more of a 12-hour drug than, say, MS cotton is. Now here's an example of where the equal analgesic dosing tables uh, re really illustrates that this is just a, a, a guess and not an exact uh, equivalent ratio. So the equal, every equal analgesic dosing table will say that 20 milligrams of oxycodone is equivalent to 30 milligrams of morphine. Um, but if you look at the original studies, uh, it's really you know anywhere from a one-to-one -one conversion. So 20 milligrams of oxycodone is 20 milligrams of morphine, or a one-to-two ratio where 20 milligrams of oxycodone is 40 milligrams of morphine. So what do we do? Uh, we settle somewhere in the middle and say that 20 milligrams of oxycodone is equal to 30 of morphine. Uh, but you could be off by 50% either direction, which should be pretty sobering, especially when converting from very high doses to calculate oral morphine equivalents. Uh, oxycodone is metabolized in the liver by uh, two main uh, cytochrome uh, isozymes, uh, 2D6 and 3A4, and there are differences here, and I think it's important, especially as we get into the age of uh, pharmacogenomics and being able to know everyone's 2D6 and 3A4 uh, phenotype uh, in the future. Oxycodone's metabolism via CYP2D6 produces oxymorphone, which is a more potent opioid uh, than oxycodone, and, and 3A4 activity uh, converts oxycodone to the inactive metabolite, nor oxycodone. So patients that are ultra-metabolizers of CYP2D6 are more likely to have adverse events. Patients who are poor metabolizers of 2D6 are more likely to have an inadequate response to oxycodone, and they say, this doesn't work for me, I don't get any pain relief. Uh, and it's not because maybe they're drug-seeking or they're lying, it's because they're not getting that oxymorphone uh, effect that the average person will, will get with, uh, with oxycodone. This also means if patients are on, say, a CYP3A4 inhibitor, like uh, like voriconazole or, or itraconazole, maybe a more potent 3A4 inhibitor, uh, they're probably going to have more toxicity because more of the metabolism of oxycodone 
it will be blocked from going to noroxycodone, and then more of it will be shunted to oxymorphone, that active metabolite. So I think that's important to keep in mind as pharmacists. Uh, the next opioid to talk about is fentanyl, and certainly fentanyl is a used IV in, in, in surgical ICUs and in operating rooms and as PCAs. But for our patients, we're talking mostly about transdermal fentanyl use. Uh, and this is a nice option for patients who cannot swallow. Um, and the way uh, this gets into the, into the body, into the, into the patient's bloodstream, is the drug comes from the patch, that transdermal dosage form. You peel off the sticker, you hold it on an area for 30 seconds, and then it diffuses the drug from the reservoir behind the patch to the adipose tissue, because fentanyl is very lipophilic. And then that concentration in the adipose tissue has to continue to build up until there's enough of a concentration gradient that it will move in significant you know, quantity from the fat to the blood. And that process takes 12 to 24 hours to fully kick in. Uh, now this becomes problematic if you're titrating the dose using transdermal fentanyl. Uh, there's a bit of a myth in my opinion that if somebody is cachectic, you can't use transdermal fentanyl. Uh, it's true that the drug ha does need to go to adipose tissue but most patients, even end-stage cancer patients, are going to have some adipose tissue uh, in their tricep region on the back of their arm or on their love handles uh, on the sides of their abdomens. Now, the duragesic package insert um, has probably the go-to dosing schedule you should use, where you add up you know, a 24-hour period of time how much total oral morphine equivalents a patient has used, look at the chart, and then figure out what is that equivalent uh, transdermal fentanyl patch strength in micrograms per hour of fentanyl released. Now that dosing um, schema in the package insert already accounts for incomplete cross-tolerance, which we have not yet mentioned, uh, which is probably, uh, hopefully not an indictment of the quality of the podcast. So what does incomplete cross-tolerance mean? That means as you increase the dose or the concentration of, the, of an opioid that are opioid receptors develop tolerance to that. And then if you switch to a different opioid molecule, that the, the tolerance built up for opioid A will not completely transfer over to opioid B. Therefore, we are commonly taught to dose reduce when switching opioids to account for incomplete cross-tolerance by say 25 to 50%. Uh, I will say that in my patient population, I do not routinely do that because they are not opioid naive. They've been on opioids for many, many months. And usually when we're switching, it's not because of toxicity. It's because their pain is not adequately controlled, in which case uh, we're not as worried about incomplete cross-tolerance. I bring this up because many have uh, noted, uh, and it's likely because the package insert dosing for the fentanyl patch already accounts for incomplete cross-tolerance that it underdoses many cancer patients on higher doses of opioids. So if you're in front of your computer, which you're probably not, you're probably on the train or you're driving, but if you get back to your office uh, or you're walking somewhere, you can, you can Google Donner, D-O-N-N-E-R, Donner Pain 1996 Fentanyl. And this will be the first hit that you get. And this is a study looking at a more aggressive conversion schedule for transdermal fentanyl, specifically for cancer patients. And some of these patients were on up to 600 milligrams a day of oral morphine equivalents. And they do basically a, a 100 to one ratio of fentanyl. And what this works out to is a more aggressive conversion. Um, and what they found from this study, using a more aggressive conversion schedule, is after they converted patients to transdermal fentanyl, none of them required a dose reduction for toxicity from opioids. And 57% roughly needed an increase in their opioid because they were still in pain and underdosed. 
and this lends some credence to the value that maybe the transdermal fentanyl dosing from the package insert underdoses patients, especially cancer patients. So just to illustrate how this plays out is you would add up your total oral morphine equivalents so let's and divide by 2.4 pretty easy you add up your oral morphine equivalents divide by 2.4 and that would give you your patch strength so for example let's say you had a patient on 300 milligrams a day of oral morphine equivalents divided by 2.4 that's 125 microgram per hour patch dose that then you would use every 72 hours now just to illustrate how much more aggressive that is than the package insert if you're on 300 milligrams a day based on the transdermal or the duragesic package insert, the dose would be, for someone on 300 milligrams a day of oral morphine, that dose becomes 75 milligrams a day of transdermal fentanyl, or 75 micrograms an hour of transdermal fentanyl. So that's a pretty big difference from the aggressive conversion from what the package insert says to do. If you are not a seasoned clinician, I would always recommend you do what the FDA label says to do. Um, I'm just offering my opinion on what I do in my practice, and this is not meant to be advice in any way. Um, now, transdermal fentanyl, because it takes 12 to 24 hours when you put the patch on for that new strength to kick in if you're increasing the dose, or for that drug to kick in if you're applying it for the first time, it's not great for rapidly changing pain. So, so this is kind of the nightmare, not a nightmare scenario, but a really maddening scenario, is a patient will come in and they're on like 25 an hour of of fentanyl, 25 mics per hour of fentanyl patch. And their pain's uncontrolled, so then they get put on MS cotton, and they're taking PO-oxycodone for breakthrough, but they've also got IV hydromorphone for breakthrough. Now we got four different types of opioids, and it's just it's just a mess. And usually for those patients, we would switch them to, uh, to a PCA, patient-controlled analgesia, give them 24 hours on a PCA, and then from that, we can figure out pretty accurately what their, their daily uh, opioid requirements are gonna be, and, and then go from there. Okay, so that's what I'll say about fentanyl. Again, uh, the Donner Payne 1996 fentanyl. You can Google that, read it for yourself, and you can make your own educated opinion on whether or not you would use that with your patients. Okay, the last opioid I'm going to talk about is methadone. Uh, methadone's probably not one that you've seen, probably not one, um, a lot in practice, especially if you're a younger clinician. There are certainly some pros and some advantages of methadone. It doesn't cause euphoria. It's one of the reasons it's used for maintenance or medication-assisted therapy for opioid maintenance. Um, so it's less likely to maybe be uh, diverted or to be abused. It blocks NMDA receptors, uh, which have an element in the pathophysiology of neuropathic pain. So for patients that have some visceral and neuropathic pain, methadone is also very attractive. It also can drastically reduce the pill burden, so it can be easier for patients. So there are a lot of attractive characteristics of methadone for terminal cancer pain. There are also some scary, scary things with methadone. It's got some very tricky pharmacokinetics. Uh, its peak analgesic effect happens, and then like two days later, the peak respiratory depression effect happens. So when patients um, overdose on methadone, uh, you know, the classic scenario would be someone started on methadone for pain. Uh, the next day, their pain's not controlled, so you increase the dose. The next day, pain's not controlled, increase the dose. Next day, pain's pain is controlled, and that's great. Unfortunately, then what happens is you leave them on the same dose after increasing it three days in a row, and a day or two later, you get that peak respiratory depression effect, and the patient can die from that. 
So for that reason, if you're using methadone, you should never increase the dose any more frequently than say every five days probably is five, you know, five days I've seen, three to five days I've seen five to seven days. So five days is probably the, the most frequent you should increase the dose of methadone for chronic pain. Uh, it also is associated with arrhythmias, uh, so it can cause, for example, QT prolongation. Um, the conversions are tricky as well. Um, so, uh, and this has to do something with incomplete cross tolerance. But let's say you have somebody, if you're using the methadone package insert, and you're using uh, the conversion scales there. The conversion of uh, oral morphine equivalence to methadone depends on how much total oral morphine equivalent that you are on. So let's say you're on 100 milligrams a day of morphine. You know, roughly that equivalent dose of methadone would be 20 milligrams a day. If you're on 500 milligrams a day of morphine, that might be 40 milligrams a day. So you've, you've increased the morphine dose fivefold, but you've only doubled your methadone starting dose. Um, if you were to titrate that, or if you were to change somebody to a dose of methadone, you're probably going to get a dose that's somewhere around 30 milligrams a day. If you calculate a new dose of methadone and get more than 30 milligrams a day, it's probably too high of a dose. You definitely should read more into it before doing this if you've not done it before. Ask, ask a trained professional um, if you're ever going to use, uh, use methadone. Okay, um, as far as toxicity of opioids, you know the toxicities, make sure these patients have naloxone. I don't think we probably do a great job in the oncology community of making sure patients have naloxone. Um, I'm maybe not as worried about patients as about caregivers, family and friends around. Constipation will happen. It's one of those opioid uh, toxicities that patients never develop tolerance to. Um, you know, Senna is kind of my go-to, two tabs BID kind of as a, as a, as a target dose. Um, you may have heard the myth that stimulants are best for opioid-induced constipation. That's, you know, there's like a letter to the editor of the England Journal of Medicine saying that, um, you know, Miralax will work, lactulose will work, Matic citrate will definitely work, and as long as you are, you know, kind of maximizing your doses of uh, your stimulants, uh, so Senna or Bisacodyl, and your osmotic laxatives like Miralax or Lactulose, you can get patients uh, and prevent them from being constipated with their opioids and probably never have to use something like methylmaltrexone, which is very expensive. Um, patients on long-acting opioids need to be on a bowel regimen. Even if they're not constipated, they will get constipated. You can prevent an admission because of a small bowel obstruction by just making sure at minimum they're taking one Senna a day or half a capful of Miralax a day or something like that. And I often will educate patients um, to the point that they're able to titrate how much opioid they're taking or how much, um, say, Miralax they're taking to balance out how much opioid they're taking. Uh, so real quick, uh, just to give you an example of kind of how you manage these patients because the pain is going to get worse as the disease progresses. Let's say you have a patient who's relatively stable on 30 milligrams of generic MS-Con every eight hours. Um, as the pain worsens, say their breakthrough dose is 15 milligrams of immediate-release morphine, and they're taking three doses a day consistently. Well, that's 45 milligrams of extra morphine they're taking on top of the 90 of maintenance. So 90 milligrams of MS-Cotton plus a day, plus the 45 the day they're routinely getting of their immediate-release uh, morphine is 135 milligrams a day of morphine. So then I would convert all of that to our long-acting morphine. So 135 divided by 3, if we're going to do it every 8 hours, ends up being 45 milligrams of MS-Con every 8 hours. That gives us a new uh, long-acting dose of 135 milligrams a day, up from the previous dose of 90. 
Now we cannot use, most likely, the same immediate release breakthrough dose of 15 milligrams for a patient who's now taking 135 a day of MS cotton. And that's because they have a higher concentration of morphine um, at basically all day at their mu opioid receptor. And if they have breakthrough pain, we have to give a large enough dose of morphine to significantly raise the concentration of morphine in the brain to have some added analgesic effect. So therefore, we need a breakthrough dose that's 10 to 20% of our total daily dose. So if we're getting 135 milligrams a day, you know, we probably need at least 30 milligrams of morphine as our new breakthrough dose, which the patients could then take, say, every six hours as needed for pain. Um, by the way, if you are a, a preceptor, a uh, faculty member uh, for oncology trainees or learners, especially students, this is a great goal or objective of your rotation is to get students some experience dealing with, with patients with chronic pain and opioid conversions because they're probably not going to see it anywhere else uh, moving forward, at least in the United States, as we continue to, to limit use and access to opioids for patients. So kind of in summary, as this marathon podcast comes to a close, this is more of art than science, but it's still scientifically based. Uh, the same way that actual artists will paint uh, and oils on one canvas and watercolors on a different canvas, and they don't mix because I guess that's science. Um, but there are three components to any pain treatment regimen for somebody with cancer. One, long-acting opioid in general. Two, a short-acting opioid for breakthrough pain, and three, a bowel regimen. And in general, I like to keep things simple. So MS cotton for long-acting, immediately morphine for breakthrough, and then Senna S, which is Senecot plus Colase, um, as, as kind of the starting point for a bowel regimen. So that is my approach to treating, uh, to treating pain in cancer patients. Uh, this is a multi-hour topic to really get good at. Um, so this is just meant to kind of give you a breakthrough, not a breakthrough, <laughs> to give you an overview and give you my thoughts on, on how to treat these folks. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, you can always reach out to me on social media, uh, at FarmDeetNib on Twitter. You can find the podcast at OncoFarmPod on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, find us in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Give us a nice five-star rating. Give us a review. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, and until I hear, uh, hear and talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.